Our Centers of Progress theme this week has revolved around the history and nature of cities and their role in promoting values central to free societies, including a respect for liberty, individual rights, free speech, and cosmopolitanism. But putting those values into action is much more complicated than it sounds. To find out how we can, though, let's explore the important distinction between design and spontaneous complexity today on The Liberty Exchange. I'm Jonathan Fortier. Welcome to The Liberty Exchange. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Sanford Aikida, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, Purchase College. Professor Aikida is formally trained as an economist and has a deep knowledge of urban planning with a particular expertise in the work of Jane Jacobs, a giant of 20th century theory of urban design, and how thinking about cities offers a particularly good avenue towards economic and social theory. Jacobs's book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, published in 1961, is still considered one of the great works about the uses and abuses of urban planning. My talk with Professor Aikida explores how different approaches to the design and growth of cities can either enable or be in tension with individual liberty and human flourishing. Sandy is the author of Dynamics of the Mixed Economy, with scholarly publications in the Southern Economic Journal, Environmental Politics, Social Philosophy and Policy, the American Journal of Economics and Sociology, Cosmos and Taxes, the Independent Review, Journal des Economistes et des Études Humaines, and the Review of Austrian Economics. He has contributed entries for the International Encyclopedia of the Social Sciences and for the Encyclopedia of Libertarianism, and has published essays in Forbes and National Review Online. His research focuses on the interconnections among cities, spontaneous social orders, entrepreneurial development, urban policy, and much more. Today, Sandy and I talk about his recent book titled A City Cannot Be a Work of Art, Learning Economics and Social Theory from Jane Jacobs, published by Paul Grave Macmillan this October. Sandy, thanks for coming on the Liberty Exchange podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Our timing is is fortunate in that you have just published a book of tremendous interest to us because it engages with so many themes relevant to free societies. But I would love to explore some of the the major themes in this work and could uh, perhaps begin with the provocative title, uh, which you take from a quotation from Jane Jacobs. The title is A City Cannot Be a Work of Art. And the uh, quotation is, when we deal with cities, we are dealing with life at its most complex and intense. Because this is so, there is a basic aesthetic limitation on what can be done with cities. A city cannot be a work of art. Why did you choose that for the title of this work? Yeah, well, thank you for reading that uh, passage. That comes from her, probably her most famous book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities, which was published in 1961. Um, and I thought that that quote and that line, a city cannot be a work of art, really captures the message that I wanted to convey in my book and indeed in most of the writing I've done about cities in the last 20, 25 years or so. And um if you think about a work of art, as, as Jacob says, what an artist does is abstract from reality rather than try to create something that is real. An artist, like an engineer, is tasked usually with, with making something that is going to serve a particular function. And an artist, in not exactly in those terms, but an artist in most cases anyway, there, there are certain kinds of contemporary art that, that maybe don't fit this particular description of trying to achieve a particular end. Those, there's, you know, today there's a lot of processual kinds of art that depends on the interaction between the observer and the artist. But I think for the most part, in, even in that case, the artist wants to achieve a particular end. And to that extent, a work of art, like a piece of uh, machinery or computer program, um, is very different from a social order, right? Because a social order has no particular end. And for me, what having read Jacobs um, starting in the late 1990s, 
uh, came to realize that a city is a uh, that kind of order, that kind of unplanned order, uh, par excellence, what a lot of social theorists today would refer to as a dynamic emergent order or a spontaneous order. So, and that's that is the sense in which a city cannot be a work of art right, to the extent that it doesn't have a particular end or purpose in mind. It serves like a market is there to serve the plans and uh, purposes of many, many, many different people who you know are usually anonymous to one another, except in small groupings. But yet somehow markets, as well as living, what I call living cities, are coordinated and coherent in in a way that doesn't require planning, which I guess we could talk about uh, in this conversation. Yeah, I'm glad you raised this this theme of spontaneous order. I'd like to return to that as a master theme shortly, because you explore that in very interesting ways. Perhaps early on, I'd like to just talk a little bit about your encounter with Jacobs. You provide a very evocative description of meeting Jane Jacobs in Toronto and that long four-hour conversation, or I guess it was perhaps even longer than that, uh, that you had with her. And I was particularly struck with your uh, description of her response to a, a question you had asked her. You, you asked her what she believed her main intellectual contribution was, and her response was economic theory. So many people that know Jacobs don't think of her as an economist, but then you go on to describe her her economic contributions. And I say many people, I see, you know, I'm thinking of people that encounter really her work on urban planning and don't think very much about her other contributions. Do you want to just say a little bit about that encounter with Jacobs and and some of her economic and social theory? Yeah, that was one of the peak moments of my life. Uh, I also had a peak moment when a friend of mine and I rode her in a taxi with Friedrich Hayek for uh, <laughs> 15 minutes uh, back when we were in graduate school. Uh, but this was uh, close to four hours you know, with uh, with Jane Jacobs, with um, a few other colleagues, including Pierre Desrochers, who um, was one of the people who got me interested in, in Jacobs and urbanism in particular way back in the 1990s. Yeah, that was uh, an amazing afternoon. She had just completed her last published book, which is called Dark Age Ahead, and had just done her Canadian taxes, which was very fortunate for us because uh, she never granted interviews while she was working on a project, and she seemed always to be working on it. And so Pierre um, and his colleague from, from the Netherlands, Hurt uh, Jan Huspers, arranged that meeting, and uh, we talked about it, just uh, many different things, including, as you, as you point out, um, her economics and her views on, on economics. And yeah, she, she did assert that economic theory, economic development in particular are, are central themes for her. And if, as I explained in, in my recent book and elsewhere, that if you look at the, just look at the titles of her major works, it, it's obvious that economics is front and center in her thinking. But as also, as you mentioned, most, most, People who are familiar with Jacobs, uh, even very familiar with Jacobs, don't either aren't aware or don't fully appreciate her economics. Uh, one exception to this is her very close friend and colleague, uh, Roberta Gratz, who coined the term living city that I use frequently in the book. And uh, she actually wrote a nice little blurb for the book, uh, appreciating the fact that I'm bringing out her, her economics. But for the most part, people who are you know fans of Jane Jacobs don't know about her economics and her social theory, they know bits and pieces of it, but they don't see how it coheres. And and by the same token, most economists, if they've heard of Jane Jacobs, don't really associate her at all with economic theorizing, with, with some major exceptions, which I know in the book, including Robert Lucas, who's a Nobel Prize winner, uh, Ed Glazer, who's a very well-known urban economist from Harvard, and others. So you know, there are exceptions there as well. But the point of the book and, and indeed a lot of my writing is to, is to make her insights, develop her insights and, and make her make people aware of, of, of what they are, her, her principles that help us really understand much better 
the uh, economic and social processes in the world. And again, the, it, the foundation for this, the social theory, has to do with the limitations of individual knowledge, that despite that, the conditions under which order emerges unplanned spontaneously. Yeah, you make a very compelling case that Jacobs should be understood within the market process school that many people understand as the Austrian school of economics, which is central to libertarian theory or classical liberalism. Do you want to just say a little bit about why you see Jacobs working within this tradition, what the major the major components of her thought are and how they are sympathetic to or uh, very similar to many of the market process thinkers? First of all, you know, in, in an early chapter of the book, I feel obliged to justify my assertion that she's a significant significant economic thinker. So I, I argue that point by point, at least in my understanding of uh, what economics is, how Jacobs checks off all these boxes for being an economist, including you know an understanding of how social order emerges and the presence of scarcity uh, amongst uh, myriad strangers, limited knowledge. Uh, but then I go further in that same chapter and early in the book and say, well, you know, beyond that, she is very close to market process economics. And this is the economics that derives from Karl Menger, Ludwig von Mises, Friedrich Hayek, Israel Kirzner, um, as the major figures. And I say that because while she is an economist in the sense that she, as I mentioned before, appreciates the function of markets, uh, the importance of trade, her focus is not on efficiency. It's not on what economists would call equilibrium and the properties of equilibrium, by which we mean states of affairs in which plans are fully coordinated. No one's making any mistakes. Or they have perfect knowledge, and so they are able to successfully plan with respect to other agents in a market. And, and Jacobs will have none of that when her, because her focus is on change and innovation and the role of cities in that process of change and innovation. So change and innovation, discovery, as Israel Kirshner would put it, entrepreneurial discovery, doesn't happen, doesn't need to happen if your information is sufficient or perfect to begin with. And so the very fact that she's interested in change and social change and innovation it implies that her, the starting point of her social theory is that, well, people are at least partially ignorant. And so there has to be some way, if, and, and if people are, are, that's true, people are partially ignorant, and, and but we do see uh, living cities of innovation and, and order and so forth, uh, how does that come about? How do you get this unplanned order, largely unplanned? She's not, you know, an anarchist, a, a libertarian anarchist or anything like that. But, you know, how do we get that unplanned order from this independent actions of myriad strangers who are strangers to one another and have limited and imperfect knowledge? So that's, you know, the real connection between her understanding of economic processes, her interest in economics and her understanding of economic processes and the strong connections between that and market process economics, which I try to point out in, in my writings. Do you think she saw efficiency as being in tension with discovery or innovation or perhaps even mutually exclusive with it? Yes, though, because efficiency, strictly speaking, I mean, people use efficiency sometimes just to mean what I like. That's efficient. If I like it, that's efficient. But economists, you know, and they're being careful, uh, mean by efficiency that you achieve a particular end with the means available at the lowest cost. So what that implies is that you know what end you're going to pursue. You know all the means available to you. You know the costs, right, of, of those ends. You know the benefit, excuse me, you know the cost of those means and you know the benefit of the end. And so you choose that combinations of of means to achieve that end, which will get you there at the lowest cost. So that's efficiency. And Austrians or market process theorists, theorists criticize this because, well, how do you, how can you assume that people have a perfect awareness of the means available or even what ends that they want to pursue, right? And, you know, this is precisely what Jacobs says. I mean, she, she, she castigates microeconomics because of its, its focus on 
on efficiency uh, in this sense, right? She says somewhere, the virtue of cities is that they are inefficient. Why? Why? Well, because cities are places where people experiment, where there's trial and error taking place. And you don't, like, as I said earlier, you don't need to experiment. You don't need trial and error if, you're, if you already know what it is that you want and the best way to get there, right? I, I, in my, uh, some of my talks uh, and to my students, I say, well, you know, you, when you graduate or, you know, when you go off to uh, start your careers, you probably move from where you are uh, living now, I mean, campus or your hometown, to somewhere else, to, and it'll likely be a city. And, you know, why do you do that? Well, because you think that there's going to be an opportunity to do, you know, X, Y, or Z, right? You want to do something. You have an idea that uh, uh, you want to go into arts or you want to go into you have a job in engineering or something. And I say, well, you do that. Of course, you have a particular end that you want to pursue. But once you get to a city, uh, to that location, you start working there. I, it, invariably, you'll discover, well, this, there are other oppor- this is, may not be the best thing for me. There are other opportunities for me in this city or make, I'm, I'm aware of. And so the ends that you want to pursue will change as you learn about the environment. And so similarly, you know, the means, how to achieve that end, you'll learn what they are and you will experiment. You'll, you'll try one job, you leave it for another one and all this sort of thing. So I say, well, wait a minute. Why don't you just choose the best job to begin with, right? Why don't you choose a job that you're going to end up with and be your career right at the beginning? And it's like, are you crazy? Uh, you don't know this sort of thing. How can you possibly know that? And I said, yeah, exactly. Right? And Jacobs understood this. Right? Jacobs said, well, this is the cities are incubators of ideas, big and small. They're incubators of ideas in the sense that I was saying. And I was just, I was talking about jobs, but, you know, in the ordinary sense of the word, but people go to cities for many different things to, to escape where they are now, their current friends and family or whatever it is, or they want to try new things. They want to adopt a new identity, which is easier to do in a big, big anonymous city than it would be in, in, a, in a smaller uh, settlement, smaller town. Anyway, so that's, that's the thing that attracts, cities attract people who are searching, they retain people who are still searching, and so forth. So the, the, the idea of innovation, trial and error, eliminating ignorance, discovery, it, it's maybe not exactly using those terms, but they're certainly central themes in Jacobs's analysis of living cities. Well, this is a natural place to return to this idea of spontaneous order that you mentioned earlier. I like how you set up the book because you have these extended meditations, really, on spontaneous order. And uh, then towards the end of the book, you talk about constructivist responses to some of the challenges in cities. So I think you've queued it up very nicely. Your earlier sections think about the city as a spontaneous order um, in the same way that markets are a spontaneous order or language is a spontaneous order. Maybe you could you know, outline some of the ways you think this operates and what the virtues and perhaps some of the negative consequences, unintended consequences are of the spontaneous order. You frame it within trade-offs. So I think that's quite interesting. You frame it within the context of there being limits, of course, to order and planning. And, and so how would you outline your, your thinking about this um, this whole whole master theme, yeah. As I said earlier, you know, Jacobs was not a an anarchist, or she, uh, in the sense that she thought a lot of planning should be done by the government. Now, I try to be a little more neutral with respect to you know, who should do the planning. I think she understands that you know we talk about most of the plans that do the heavy lifting in society are done by you know private individuals. We have our ideas about you know jobs and so forth, lifestyles. But uh, she recognizes, and I recognize, that if you're going to have a, a city of, you know, you know in, t- in today's world, a major city is over a million people. And so what do you have? Well, you have infrastructure, you have roads, you have sewers, water supply, waste removal, uh, communication, and so forth, power supply, transport. So in those infrastructural areas, you need to have planning and sometimes extensive planning, at least over time. 
again, uh, there are examples today of private cities where that are not on the scale of let's say a million yet, but that uh, potentially could be, depending on you know how they evolve in the future. But that are that are not that are not centrally planned, at least for those particular things. Let me just digress for just a moment. Um, if you ask the question, how could a free market provide freeways that require eminent domain, that is the taking of private property for public use, um, how would the free market do that? I say, well, it couldn't, at least not very easily. Although historically, if you look at how uh, John Nash, uh, not the economist, but the, the planner in London, planned roads, major boulevards in London, I do, it was done privately. But for the most part, if you want to talk about freeways, you can't, right? Not it, it, not easily or maybe not even feasibly. But if you ask the question differently, if you say in terms of capabilities instead of concrete elements, if you say, well, how, how can you promote maximal mobility or how can you promote optimal mobility? So you phrase in terms of mobility instead of freeways. Then we say, okay, well, there's autonomous vehicles. There's, uh, you know, there's uh, footpaths that you can create that will make accessible different kinds of land uses, uh, bike paths, and so forth. Now, somebody has to create those bike paths, but that's certainly on a different scale than a major concrete six or eight lane freeway going through a city. And there's air transport today. We have, you know, drones and things like that that, that are possible. Anyway, so that that's that's one point. Okay. That was my digression. <laughs> I'll get back to the to the main um, main question about the trade off between planning and uh, deliberate concert planning versus spontaneous order. Uh, let me just put it in terms of design complexity, because you can design things that are highly complex, computer programs and so forth, or an undesigned or spontaneous complexity, which are orders of magnitude much more complex. A city is much more complex than anything that an individual mind or a team of individual minds could could create for reasons that you know we can talk about but might take a long time to explain but there, there's these tremendous differences between planned and unplanned uh, complexity however you do need to have some planned complexity let's let's take uh, let's take roads for example however or whoever implements them whether it's like uh, through through of private development or through um, governmental planning. So you have to have some kind of, of, of transport system, mobility system, and let's say that it, it's it's planned in this way. There are certain kinds of planning such as that, which to an extent initially complements spontaneous complexity. That is, it offers a way for people to pursue their own plans successfully, more or less successfully. So in order to get from point A to point B in, in a reasonable amount of time, then you need to, to have some sort of infrastructure that will enable that to happen. And, or you could say the same thing for for the other the other thing, power uh, provision, sewage removal, and so forth. Moreover, you know, you need to have some going beyond the physical, you need to have some uh, rules that enable people to cooperate. And in an urban context, these are often rules dealing with spillovers, externalities, and that sort of thing. And so not burning garbage in such a way that's going to injure neighbors and things like that. Okay, so these are negative externalities. And so you may have rules that forbid certain kinds of activities that um, would harm others, you know, most likely harm, harm, harm others. Um, but as as Hayek points out, Friedrich Hayek, there are rules that are negative rules that forbid you from doing certain things, and that tends such rules tend to be consistent with the rule of law and classical liberal principles that say, yeah, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal from thy, thy neighbors. Actually, I don't think Hayek put it exactly that. Somebody else put it that way. But that forbid, but don't accept them exceptional cases mandate. So you have what uh, uh, Richard Wagner puts in terms of piazza versus parade. And piazza is a place where it's a, it's a, in a physical surrounding which somebody built or was built over time by different people where you hang out, you interact, you play the guitar, you 
have dinner, you know, have conversations, versus a parade where individuality of that sort is forbidden. You don't have a, a marching band, for example, where everybody can do what they want to and be a conventional marching band. The Stanford marching band back in the day, back when I was in high school, uh, Stanford University, used to have this really anarchistic kind of marching band. There was, and so it was, you know, there's always that. But for the most part, uh, a marching band individually goes out the window. You have to take so many steps forward, turn a certain way, right? Uniformity is the norm. And so uh, any deviation from that is is forbidden. So what is not mandated is forbidden. Whereas what Hayek is saying and what v- Wagner is saying is that, well, you have certain you have certain rules. Don't disturb the peace. Don't play music too loud or something like that. But anything else you can do as long as it doesn't harm anybody, right? This is sort of, I guess, the million John Stuart Mill concept. So the extent that the infrastructure that you build enables people to pursue their own plans and doesn't encroach upon the potential for spontaneous complexity, that's fine, right? You're, you need those kinds of rules. You need those kinds of physical structures. But what, what happens invariably and this particularly when government gets involved because the government has a soft budget constraint through you know, taxation and inflation of, of the currency. They get big. And so they expand beyond the, the realm which would complement spontaneous complexity and so it reduces spontaneous complexity. So at that point, there's a trade-off. Okay, you want to design something bigger for a particular reason. I mean, for example, this would be a, a lot of, Cities have sports stadiums, which are subsidized by the local government, either through issuance of bonds or eminent domain often. So it's private public, and these are you know, a popular way of, of building such things these days. And that creates problems for the surrounding area, which we can talk about later. But, but what you're doing is you're building something that is, would be very difficult to change later uh, and very costly to change and excludes many, many possibilities for the use of that space. Granularity, as Eric Robbins would say, the number of, of, of uses for in that same space would severely diminish. Now, that's sometimes unavoidable, because right? you, sometimes you need to build something that, that's big. But the point is, you need to be aware that there is this trail. And so, to the extent that you want to build something even bigger, right, beyond a sports team like a, a city, in, in Saudi Arabia, right, the, uh, the prince of Saudi Arabia uh, is uh, wants, is building this enormous trillion-dollar complex uh, called Neom, N-E-O-M, if you just look it up. And, and part of that is a, is a linear city of 100 miles long and 200 meters wide, okay, which is going to, if it is ever successful, will be a disaster. So that's that's the extreme version of that in modern terms. I and mean, in the past, we can look at designs of uh, Le Corbusier and, and others. So yeah, so there's that there's that trade off that that between design complexity and spontaneous complexity. Yeah, that's f- fascinating. Much of what you have been describing with your references to Hayek and uh, with Wagner and, and others reminds me of Richard Epstein's uh, the title of Richard Epstein's book, Simple Rules for a Complex World. And what you seem to be describing is is just that realized in urban form. In other words, there's a, a, a simplified context or framework that can be designed, but the the spontaneity emerges within that simple order, within that simple design. And if you over-design the framework, then you over-determine or try to over-determine outcomes and you you, you risk... Uh, creating spaces like the giant sports stadium, which has an intrusive and negative effect on spontaneity, if I understand you correctly. Yeah. I mean, again, sometimes these things are unavoidable. But an example, locally, I live in Brooklyn. You know, they built a, they built a, a basketball arena for the Brooklyn Nets. And, you know, okay, fine, build a basketball arena. But what uh, happened to the original plans is that in addition to the basketball arena, uh, the city was going to enable them to uh, build a housing complex, office complex, and this thing just kept growing and growing and growing. Now it hasn't expanded to that level because there's so many legal disputes. You know, people sued to to prevent this from happening, and which delayed the project for many many years. 
but anyway, that's that's an example of the dynamic that that occurs once you have this these very solid budget constraints. I, I should say one more thing about planning. I was it Mike Tyson who said everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Um, so I think it's yes, beautiful. So you plan something, you know, and it doesn't work out, right? So what's nece- it's necessary to be flexible and adaptable and uh, in general, the smaller the scope of your plan, right? Who, who it affects, how many it's going to affect, and the, the complexity of design, the specificity that is of the things that you want to take to happen, the smaller that is, the the in general the easier it is to adapt and to change, right? Both the, the scale of the of the of the project and the complexity of the design of the project. But what happens is that when you build these public projects and public-private partnership projects, um, the scale and the design expand uh, enormously. So that the ability to adapt to changes, well, first of all, the ability to discover that you're making an error diminishes, right? And um, then... If you do discover how you know how to change it, it's not only so. So that's just a, a matter of awareness, and that awareness diminishes as the scale and the and the design elements increase. Um, but then also the, the the cost of changing those plans increases enormously, which is why you know if you're going to build something on that scale and you have ambitions to build it, you know, with, with certain design elements of all, you know, I'm not an architect, I'm not an urban planner, but um, the lessons that I learned from social theory is that the slower you can feasibly go in doing that, the more gradually you do it, the easier it is then to, to change direction as you go along. One example of this, I think, is very good is in New York, is Battery Park City in lower Manhattan, which took uh, years and years and years to complete, uh, which is I think finally, finally completed. Uh, well, some time ago, but it, it it took a couple of decades I think to to because they were they were designing it modularly and they were adjusting over time. It's it's actually a very nice, in, in my opinion, very nice uh, area. Not just aesthetically, but what's going on there, the things that the the kinds of uses and productivity that's happening there. Um, so it's not always possible. To, to build gradually or modularly. And so, you know, you need to think twice about that because, you know, the investors want want uh, returns right away. Uh, engineers think that, well, you know, if you build the entire system at once, that you, then that's cheaper than going, you know, small and small. And that's all true. That's all true. But from, the, from the, a socioeconomic perspective, that is the impact on, on the greater economic and social order, uh, this sort of gradual growth and modularity to the extent that it's feasible is, is probably more desirable. Yeah, yeah. Another phrase um, that is used interchangeably with spontaneous order is emergent order. And, and it sounds like this is a, devel- a development that's trying to model that that ethic, isn't it? That, you know, developing something over time organically. Um, and as you say, Checking progress and changing course as needed, uh, depending on on changing circumstances, uh, sounds much more friendly to to innovation and learning from mistakes than imposing a, a top down centrally organized plan from the get go and executing it. Yeah, if you can build that into the design, make it flexible, you know, physically to to adapt to different things, or if you allow already built physical structures like, like schools, universities, to adapt to changes, the multiple use over over time or at a given time, those which you can do, right? You can do that through changing changes in zoning ordinances and other things of that nature, you know, legal uh, regulations to enable flexibility of use, division of space into smaller or larger spaces as, as uh, need arises, then that, uh, that w- that's another way of adapting in a given circumstance. So with with these ideas in mind, how would you think about an urban landscape like Manhattan, which at first glance looks like a 
highly designed urban space um, set up on a grid, but perhaps that's just a, a framework within which lots of spontaneity can occur. I mean, how would you, what are the limits really of of design that uh, enable sufficient spontaneity and human freedom and innovation? Would Manhattan be a, an example of that or would that be an over-designed space, would you think? Well, the um, grid of Manhattan, which was sort of echoed in the other boroughs as they became part of New York City, was designed by a committee um, in the early 1800s, 1810, 1811. This, this is a uh, uh, the book called City on a Grid, um, whose author escapes me, but the book is titled City on a Grid, which is really interesting because the history of the, of that Manhattan grid and what uh, what preceded it. Uh, you know, there were private farms in Lower Manhattan, um, which um, estates, I should say, large estates, where they, uh, the the owners of those estates had actually planned their own grid, which is different from the uh, the, the commission. Uh, the governmental, the state government commission grid that eventually came out, and some of that is still visible today. But anyway, uh, so your question is, you know, the, the the trade-off there. So what the what the commissioners did was to lay out a map. Now at that time in 1811, most of Manhattan was not developed; it was inhabited sometimes by Native Americans and others, and so forth. But the the principal area of development in 1811 was below 14th Street. So those of you who don't know Manhattan, Manhattan goes up to you know, the 200s. Okay, now. So they were planning for the future and what they, they, they had a certain idea where streets, north-south streets and north-south avenues and east-west streets should go uh, and uh, those who were going to develop had that as their framework as a matrix in which to do to and there was no zoning at that time at least not as we have it today certainly so you could do whatever you wanted to in those plots now if you're a developer and you wanted to you know buy land a certain number of these blocks you could certainly do that and the fact that the grid was there made selling those plots easier because you could see you could divide up each plot each each block into, into several plots and you knew the streets were going to go there. So yeah, that certainly did facilitate development. Uh, so that's the kind of planning that I referred to earlier as, for the most part, enabling and complementing spontaneous complexity, which is not to say that the grid as designed and as eventually implemented, by the way, it's different now than there was, it had, a, it did adapt from the way it uh, was originally planned. But, you know, it's not to say that that's the perfect, that was the you know the best that they could have come up with. I think there were better ones. And I think the, the book that I mentioned, City on a Grid, uh, talks about alternatives uh, that uh, might have occurred. Now, um, nevertheless, uh, as I said a moment ago, the possibility for adaptation was was still in built in because not all of Manhattan, this was, this was, a grid laid out on most, as I said, mostly undeveloped land. So there was no central park, for example. Um, that's probably the most, the biggest example. Also, Broadway in Manhattan runs diagonally across the island, and uh, basically from the southeast to the northwest. So it cuts through, and there was no really no provision for that initially, and which is nice. I'm sorry. Uh, the fact that, that that it's there is really nice because some of the, the most interesting intersections in New York occur where that diagonal cuts through the grid. Yeah, even if it upsets sort of Cartesian sensibilities. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, yeah. And you could tell another story, a similar story about the New York City subway, which was begun in 1904, and uh, well, maybe a little bit earlier than that, but it was it really got going in 1904 and. and was planned out in a certain way, which was a private companies, by the way. But the, no one in 1904 or 1920 or 1930 could have predicted, well, maybe not by 1930, but uh, let's say 1920 uh, could predict exactly what the system would look, look like. I corrected myself because by 1940, the system was pretty much frozen. Uh, and there was no new subway line until, no significant new subway line until just a, a few years ago, 
so the history of New York is uh, fascinating, and I've always thought of it as an interesting example in this discussion of spontaneous order versus design, and uh, and how we think about the trade-offs between the two. Clearly, Jacobs thought that there was a problem with uh, urban planning, um, as she saw it, uh, in the death and life of great American cities. Um, she begins with this incredibly pointed and provocative sentence. She writes, this book is an attack on current city planning and rebuilding. And you you have a discussion of that. What do you identify as Jacobs's principal concerns? Um, and do you agree with her concerns? Or do you have different concerns about the way cities are planned or over-planned, uh, centrally planned? Yeah, and I would just add that... Um the second sentence, after the one you just, just read, says, it is also and mostly an attempt to introduce new principles of city planning and rebuilding. So I've, a lot of um, libertarians neglect the second sentence and just focus on the first. And I, so I think it's important to, to, address, to address both of them. But to, to address the first part about uh, the attack on, on city planning, um, I mean, there are many specific examples of this having to do with building of of um, highways and uh, parks and uh, housing projects um, that uh, Jacobs had in mind, and this is in, in the context of New York City. This is mostly in the uh, focused on uh, the the planning commissioner Robert Moses, who's also very famous or infamous in the world of, of urbanism and urban planning. Um, not everybody dislikes him, but I think the, the general feeling is that uh, that uh, he was kind of a bad guy. There's there's, there's actually uh, a, a couple of plays uh, that have been out about Robert Moses and, and Jay Jacobs. But but anyway, um, so those are specific examples, you know, parks, highways, and so forth um, that were misplanned. But the, they are manifestations of a deeper social theory, and that is. Um, the neglect that individuals uh, that are being affected by this have knowledge of their environment, which is not available to the planet. Right. So this is what Jacobs calls uh, local knowledge or locality knowledge. Right. Hayek uses the term local knowledge. Jacobs talks about locality knowledge, and this is can be partly communicated to the planner, uh, but for not wholly, but would for either for reasons of of uh, you know epistemological reasons, not able to convey information, or just through arrogance, the planner is neglecting. So that the she she the beginning of her 1961 book, Death and Life in Great American Cities, starts off about sidewalks. The first few chapters are about sidewalks, the uses of sidewalks, contact, children, so forth, and that's a brilliant way of starting because it, it gets at this fundamental point of social theory. The principle that is, people, you, if you're going to plan, you need to observe and to think about how people are actually going to use the space. How are people using the space that you're trying to change? First of all, is it is the end that you're trying to impose, whether it's you know faster car transport or whatever it is, environmental concerns, sustainability, whatever, whatever the end. She didn't talk about those things, but those are concerns today. Whatever that end is, see what people are actually doing. In other words, there's a deep respect that Jacobs had for the knowledge and resourcefulness of ordinary people. So, you, you, so this this um, what uh, a market process economist might call methodological individualism and methodological subjectivism. That is, understand that so, social orders are made up of uh, the choices of individuals. That's methodological individualism, and that these individuals have perceptions and perspectives on the uh, world in which they're occupying, the, the part of the world that they're occupying, and that's methodological uh, subjectivism. Right? And then how those things interact to generate an overall pattern of use uh, in that neighborhood or in district or in the city as a whole. And that's what a market process economists are called the principle of market processes, or in this case, uh, urban processes. All right, so that's what she is a fundamentally, in terms of social theoretic 
context, that's what she's attacking, that a, a lack of appreciation for the knowledge, expectations, resourcefulness of individual people, and the limitations of the planner in accessing that knowledge. Okay, so the extent that you can't access that knowledge for, let's say, epistemological reasons, then you probably should think twice about doing that, right? Because unless you actually go there, go to that street, go to that neighborhood and see how it is, then you're not going to really appreciate what it is you're trying to plan for. Right. Was this the the, the ballet of the street that she, um, as, as she described it? Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and again, that's a um, the the street ballet is an example of, of of a spontaneous order. How people use public spaces different times of the day for different purposes, which is not you know a result of anybody's uh, planning. The other a phrase that is um, popularized uh, from Jacobs is "eyes on the street," eyes on the street, and that's a very good expression not only for her urbanism, but also for, again, what market process theorists would call methodological subjectivism, that you, you, people are perceiving things in their environment, which, right or wrong, you know, they make mistakes, but in, in general, under the right conditions, enable them to successfully execute their plans. Yeah. She seemed to be extremely interested in sort of the the granularity of life, the details of life, and uh, and had a real respect and love for humanity and individuals, the way they lived their lives. That's how it comes across. Yeah, this stands in stark contrast to um, to, for example, Soviet planning of urban spaces um, that. Um, as you know, um, often involved destroying old medieval city centers and building these large um, concrete housing developments uh, that um, would now house you know the people in the in the brave new world of collectivist society. So it seemed to be driven, obviously driven by ideology. Um, and you point out that Jacobs was sort of anti-ideological. She was stridently trying to avoid being ideological and trying to develop her theories, not not necessarily in an ideological vacuum, but by observing what was happening in, on the street as opposed to coming to the problem with a preconceived set of ideas. Yeah. As you say, she's you know, fiercely opposed to uh, being connected with any ideology, whether it be classical liberalism or Marxism. And believes strongly in observation and, and she called herself a pragmatist. And so that goes back to what I was saying earlier about and if you're going to plan, you should go and, and look for yourself and see, see look, look at the granularity and the details of, of these uh, different uh, in, uh, environments that you want to plan for. And you mentioned the Soviet experience. She actually has comments in her later books about Soviet central planning that are very consistent with the criticisms of Mises and Hayek, um, but you know what? What she was—I don't actually put it quite this way in any of my writings. But you know, now that I think about it, you know, which what she is um, really criticizing is arrogance and hubris, right? And promoting humility. Um, remember Hayek in his Nobel lecture talked about—I think it was his Nobel lecture time coping with ignorance. And when one understands social orders, you understand that you have to be modest in what you uh, want to want to do with respect to the social order. And I think that's that's, that's precisely what what, what uh, Jacobs's attitude was. Right? Not that you shouldn't do anything, but you know you should do you should approach complex social order first of all by understanding that it is complex. And then looking at the details, how it actually operates, which may not be the same from one place to another. So there's that's through pragmatism, right? There's there's an empiricism uh, that in in her approach that um, is uh, fundamental. Yeah, it's a fascinating um, set of ideas here that intersect with um, questions of freedom almost everywhere. 
perhaps we could wrap up with sort of a meditation on on some of the constructivism that you raised towards the end of of your book um which is a obvious counterpoint to spontaneous order where do you see some of the worst excesses of constructivism when it comes to urban planning um and how do you think that that has exerted a cost or a toll on human prosperity or human flourishing I mean, the uh, sort of the classical ones I mentioned, Recoupagier and the Radiant City, Ebenezer Howard's Garden City, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, concept of um, uh, Broadacre City, uh, and, and, and others, right? those, but those are some of the more famous ones. Um, more recently, you know, what I tried to do earlier in the book is, is, is to point out that while large-scale urban planning is not popular in North America, uh, today, it's it's alive and well in other parts of the world. And I mentioned a moment ago what's going on in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I could talk about the United Arab Emirates, uh, Dubai, uh, the palm uh, cities, the palm developments that they're trying to implement there. Um, but also in, in Asia, I mean, China's ghost cities, these enormous um, settlements that they're well, there's no way. Well, they're called ghost cities because, at least for now, they are not inhabited for the most part. Some of them are, some of them are successful, but for, for the most part, they're they're not. These are large uh, settle, settlements that are intended to to uh, uh, have about you know a million people in them or more. That and and then there are dozens of these. Building being built in in China, and for for various reasons. I mean, I guess you know people think of well, you need to depopulate cities, which is sort of the old early twentieth century idea of you got to get people out of cities because cities are these terrible places. Um, but also, I think it's it has some macro in China has some macroeconomic uh, uh, motivation. You know, make work for construction so it'll boost the apparent gross domestic product and so forth. Uh, so those are those are some that that exist today, and then those those are large scale examples or smaller scale examples uh, that uh, one can point to. But there are also you know developments today in the smart city movement, the free city movement that uh, are smaller, tend to be smaller in scale and um, much more uh, market based, much more. Uh, uh, consistent with classical liberal principles that uh, are, you know, encouraging. There are there there aren't any of these that have matured into into what I would call real cities. That is to say, cities where there's innovation, creation of, of new ideas, and and so forth. Um, but uh, they are encouraging. There are cities that have rather relaxed uh, regulations on zoning, for example. I think Houston is one of them, where people uh, are permitted to have mixed-use construction and mixed-use throughout the city, if I'm not mistaken. Is this one way of of dealing with the problem of overly determined or constructivist uh, approaches by simply um, relaxing zoning regulations or relaxing other sorts of regulations that perhaps are not necessarily connected to the particular design of the city, but have to do with a whole array of other institutional restrictions on the way the space is used. Yeah. I mean, what makes the city a living city or I think one a livable city, as most people would uh, regard it, is what happens on the street level, what you, what you feel and see at the street level. And what Jacobs points out, and, and I, I totally agree with her on this, is this granularity of land use, different uses within a given stretch of, of street, uh, what kinds of uh, things would attract you? Are there there to, to attract you? Um, you know, Rather than a whole block being one use, you know, whether it's a university or a factory or something like that, which again, you know, sometimes you have to do this, but um, there are there are those trade-offs we talked about uh, that that manifest themselves. So you find 
this, you know, if you can find a way to promote that kind of granularity, um, then then you're going to enable people to uh, pursue these different uses and on their own. You don't have to tell them. Okay, you you may have regulations that, as I said earlier, uh, would uh, ban noxious uses or things like that. And there are different ways of doing that. There are better and and worse ways of uh, regulating those sorts of things. Okay. But you know that that is something that would emerge over time spontaneously, and that so you know designing a city and trying to incorporate. That kind of spontaneous granularity is, I think, literally impossible. And so, if you're going to design, if you're going to try to design an entire city like Neom the Line, it's you're not going to have that spontaneous complexity. Impossible, right? It has, it's it's not something you can uh, uh, design from the beginning comprehensively, right? Or at, at, at all. So anyway, that's 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 the I think that's the objective here, really. For most urbanists, is not a not a, a city as a work of art, but a city a city where people can find spaces that appeal to them individually and pursue their own idea of a meaningful life. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's a uh, wonderful place to leave the conversation for now, uh, Sandy. Um, your book is is so rich and covers so many different themes that uh, we may well have to have you back on to uh, to talk about some of the other ideas that uh, that you explore. So many of them intersect with, with our concerns here uh, at libertarianism.org and uh, I think uh, would, would make for a series of great conversations. Is there anything you'd like to, to say uh, in closing um, as we wrap up this conversation? Yeah, I think, you know, my, my book, The City Cannot Be a Work of Art, Learning Economics and Social Theory from Jane Jacobs, published by Palgrave McMillan, <laughs> is no substitute for reading the, you know, Jane Jacobs' own work. And I say that throughout my, my book. It's, it's not, this is not a Jane Jacobs for dummies, right? It's, it's, it's my interpretation. So I think, uh, if, if, you know, if you're interested in what I'm, what we're talking about today, what I'm saying, you need to read Jacobs. Uh, I guess start with Death and Life of Great American Cities. Uh, read all the parts of it, not just the first part, which some people do. Read all of it, and um, you know, there's so many examples. It, I mean, the examples, some of them are dated. It, this 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 is a book that's uh, over 60 years old now, but. Uh, and it's still it's full still full of insights that will allow you to see the world around you in a fresh way. When I, I've taught my course uh, on cities, culture, and economy and purchase over twenty years, it's one of my most popular course, maybe the most popular course that I teach, and it's because I think it changes people just by reading Jacobs. It changes the way people perceive their the surroundings. I mean, it could be an office, it could be their house. To just be the street, looking what it is, how to how to look at your social environment. The um, Jacobs is one. Uh, Christopher Alexander is another one. I mean, there are a whole bunch of things that uh, I, the authors, I should say, that I cite in my book, and, and hopefully people who are interested will pursue. Yeah, you have a very rich bibliography and footnotes um, throughout the work. So, um, so we will provide a, a link to your book. Uh, which has just come out this autumn, and uh, we will also uh, include some some references to uh, Jane Jacobs's work and uh, to some of your other um, articles and, and books as well. So, um, Sandy, thank you very much for your time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Liberty Exchange, a project of libertarianism.org. This episode was hosted by Jonathan Fortier and produced by Landry Ayers. Special thanks to Sanford Aikida and the rest of the libertarianism.org team, including Pericles Niarchos, Paul Meany, Allison Yaffe, and Grant Babcock. If you liked this and want more, visit us online 
at libertarianism.org.